What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Hello, welcome to Worlds Awaiting, where we're going to discuss the amazing world of children's literacy as we discuss books and all types of learning. Today, the worlds we are exploring are inspiration, communication, and literacy. First, we'll meet with Andy Ellis, a children's book author who will talk to us about the ways she got inspiration for her newest book. Then we'll talk with our recurring guest, Mary Bigler, about helping our children develop listening skills. Our last guest will be literacy expert Brad Wilcox, and we'll discuss how important literacy really is. Before we leave you, we'll gather around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with the book Middle Child Blues by Kristen Crow, and we'll hear the cast of Studio C talk about their opinions on books and libraries. But before all of that, let's take a little look into my world. It's likely that the majority of us are familiar with alphabetical writing systems. These are the systems we use to convey sounds that create words that then convey meaning. You might call this writing or text or something else, but in order for reading to happen, we have to have a writing system to convey it. So you can see that alphabetical writing systems are pretty important and a significant part of literacy. But when we consider alphabetical writing systems, there are lots of things we might consider, including the history of how they were developed. But one important item that we must pay attention to are aesthetic considerations. Aesthetics are concerned with the beauty of something and talk about how our minds and hearts are impacted by that beauty. Because alphabetical writing systems are visual by nature, they too can have beauty. And thus, we need to consider how their aesthetics impact our minds and hearts. Every time you use that drop-down menu in your word processing program to select a font style for your document, you are paying attention to the aesthetic considerations of your writing system. Designers pay attention to this all the time as they pick the right color, size, shape, font, and placement for each word used in any communication. So you may ask why all this is important for us to think about here at Rachel's World. Well, one of the important applications of aesthetics and literacy is how it is conveyed in the production of books. While any book must pay attention to the aesthetics of the words, the consideration is especially important in picture books. This is true because in picture books, the text literally becomes part of the picture, and so its aesthetics has to complement and enhance those of the illustrated portions as well. To this end, many picture books use the aesthetics of text to engage the reader. They use bigger fonts to convey power or emotion. They use color to emphasize words or define ideas. All of this becomes an integral and important part of the overall aesthetic power of the book. So next time you read a great picture book, maybe take a little time to consider just how the author and illustrator use the aesthetic considerations of an alphabetical writing system to convey something beautiful. Rachel's World. Inspiration can come from many different places. Andy Ellis, our first guest of the day, is an author who takes quite a bit of inspiration from the real world. 
she's able to take her own experiences and the experiences of those around her and write them into compelling and beautiful books for young children. We're in the studio with Andy now, and I just want to say welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here today, Andy, particularly to introduce to our listeners your newest novel, You May Already Be a Winner. So to start out, maybe tell us a little bit about the inspiration and where this novel came from. Well, um, all of my novels, when I start a book, I start with a scene. I just start writing. And so they always come from a character and a scene. And the beginning of this book, it starts with a girl who's at the pool. She's daydreaming. She's deep into this daydream when her mom says, Olivia, where's your little sister? And so she suddenly jolts out of the daydream and she has to look around. Where's my sister? And so right there I had, when I wrote that scene, I thought, okay, I have this girl. She's in charge of her sister. She's a daydreamer. I have her mom on the deck who... Um, is clearly just coming from work to pick them up at the pool. So I had all these questions and kind of a setup for the novel just in that first scene. And that's typically how I get into a novel is just write a first scene and then try to figure out who these people are. So that's like, from a writing standpoint, that's how I started the novel. As for inspiration, there's a couple different things. When I was writing and I was thinking a lot about how kids have to deal with adult situations, like adult decisions. For example, I had taken my two-year-old on a water slide. I thought, oh, I think this would be really fun for for him. And I took him and then he was screaming and I thought, oh my gosh, he had no idea what I was... Like all of a sudden I'm taking him up these stairs and then we're going down a water slide and he's screaming and I thought, he had no agency in that decision. Like he yeah. just had to go. And so I... And, and he didn't like it. And I just kind of forced him to do it. And I, I was, I've been thinking a lot about... As a parent and as an adult, we have, we have a lot of situations we, we go through and things we do, and the kids just have to deal with that. And so I thought a lot about that when I was writing the book and how kids are resilient and they have to kind of step up a lot of times with adult situations. And so that was something that kind of inspired the book. And then another thing that inspired the book is um, right after my mom passed away, my dad and I started going to water aerobics. And... Um, it was just as a way to exercise, but we really kind of found a community there um, with the same people every morning. And they'd ask, how are you doing? They knew our names. They, my dad would tell them about, you know, whatever writing project I was doing. And we'd talk about what he was into. And soon that kind of became a little surrogate family for us. And in the novel, Olivia, the main character, and her daughter and her sister, Berkeley, kind of have a – they have their own little family, but they also have a surrogate family in the trailer park where they kind of all look out for each other and take care of each other. So those are the two different things, just kids having to grow up but also being resilient and able to do that. But maybe they shouldn't have to do that all the time. And then also this idea of a community of family and different kinds of families. That was really one of the themes or context that stood out for me when I read this book is that extended community – at least for me, when I read it, I was kind of feeling a lack of that in my life or a lack of that in the world. I mean, it used to be that we were so close as a community mm -hmm. and we interacted as community. And it seems like as time is moving on, we're getting less and less in that way where we don't look out for each other as much and we aren't as connected in that way. And I really loved that in this book, you brought that back, how important that kind of extended group is, particularly in the lives of children. Mm -hmm. And I think the adage of, you know, it takes a village is kind of cliche now, but it really is true. It brings that sense of it takes more than just the immediate family. It takes everybody involved. 
one of the things that makes that so possible in this book is the wide range of characters yeah. that you have. There's there's such a broad range of, yeah. of other characters. You know, you have your main characters, but you have this wonderful, eclectic broadcast of other characters. How did all of them come to be? Some of them are very eccentric and some of them are humorous and some of them are a little more serious. How did you create that many characters to people, this wonderful community in your book? Oh, that's so kind of you. I actually just (laughs) – that's my favorite part of writing is just – having fun and making up like my my niece called me um, and she's like I could not stop laughing that's totally she could recognize things that we had done in some of the characters and some crazy things that some other people we knew I mean it's kind of a little bit from here and there and I like to have fun just oh what would this person be like and I have one character who he likes to um, he's kind of eccentric he's always he's kind of always doing crazy things and I think maybe he's like um I don't, I can't even remember what, let's see. So he is always collecting things and doing weird things and they, they're wondering who he is and they think they, the um, Bart, the other main character in the book is wondering if he, he's saying he's an FBI agent and he's trying to figure out who this guy is and he really just is a nice guy who does different things and I just, I had a lot of fun creating him. I had a lot of fun creating the mom and then all the neighbors and for me, that's the best part of writing is just going crazy. So when my editor was like, oh, I loved it. I was like, oh, good, because I thought I went a little bit too far. <laughs> I was like, uh, I hope this, I hope, I mean, I knew I'd have to rein it in a little bit. But when she said she loved it, I was excited because I, I had a fun time with that part of the book. And that really stands out to me, too, because that that makes this book so much richer because there are so many different people and so many different contexts. And it reads more like real life in that way. It there's certain books like this with realistic fiction that I read it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that community could just exist, mm-hmm. right? I could walk into this community. So do you think like that as you write in this this really kind of hyper-realistic sense of this exists for me so much that anybody could just walk into it? I guess my question is, how do you make these situations, the characters, and your setting so very, very real? Well, when I'm writing it, it's very real to me. I feel like I'm entering the community. I can see where they are. I can see what they're doing. I can see them laying on the trampoline. I can see it and I can imagine it. And I feel like I'm there every time I write. I kind of enter it. And I don't, I'm not a a good outliner. I don't necessarily plan, okay, and then this is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's kind of a spontaneous thing. And in some ways, I think that helps my writing be a little bit more real because I just kind of exist in that world when I write. And I am Olivia when I write, which I'm sure a lot of authors write that way. A lot of authors outline and are very more, they're a lot more meticulous, but I'm kind of a more just all over the place kind of writer, (laughs) which I I guess can help and also can be very disastrous at times. Well, in some way, I I guess that does bring that realism to me because life is that way, right? Life is chaotic that way. We don't don't experience in this really linear outlined beginning, middle, end kind of thing. And so that really answers my question in a very specific way is because that sense of that it is chaotic and this Mm -hmm. is real life. Particularly in this book, the girls deal with some very important things and some things that make them grow and develop. So as you were putting those your characters in those kinds of situations where they have to be more adult than mm-hmm. you would want them to be or they have to kind of grow up in in a little bit faster um how do you balance that making it making growth for the characters but also not making it 
too harsh or too overwhelming that it wouldn't be something that we're like, oh, no, you know, that's that's something I don't want my child to read because it's just too overwhelming for them to have to experience that. Oh, that's a good question. I like I said, I start with the character and I always love my characters and I always make them as fun. I just I have a fun time with them. And so while they might be dealing with hard things, they're also still kids. And so they they're doing crazy stuff and they're being weird and they're playing together. I hope that there's humor in the book. I try to make it that, you know, there she has these wild daydreams, which is how I lived my life and continue to live my life. Just daydreaming <laughs> all the time. What could happen? What if? Maybe this will happen. Maybe that will happen. Um, and so while there are heavier things, I really try to keep things light as far as, you know, they're still kids. So, yeah, you're dealing with hard stuff. You're having to stay home and take care of the other siblings so your mom can work. You're doing that. But you're still a kid and you still want to play and you still – have these hopes and dreams and you're still going to make up dances and jump in the pool and do flips and try to meet boys or, you know, it's still a part of who they are. And so I hope that the humor and the, and the childlike, you know, they are kids. So it's not childlike. They are kids that that comes through even when they're dealing with real life hard stuff. So that's my hope with all my novels. And I think you've very much achieved that hope because that childlike nature comes through so beautifully, but then progresses through that growth and change that the characters go through. As you think about your readers and and the readers who are going to read this book, what do you hope that they might take from this novel? Or or what is that, that kernel or nugget that you think that you left there that you would like them to experience as they read this book? I think, um, for one, I want them to know that they're not alone if they're having to deal with hard stuff like these kinds of situations. There's a lot of kids who are doing that more than I think we realize that are that are having to take on big responsibilities and are having to work hard and to grow up really fast. So I hope that they know that they aren't alone. But I also hope that they know that they can um, rely on other people and that they can get help and they can ask for help and that that people love them and that it might not be exactly how they think it should be. It might be non-traditional, that kind of thing, but that they have um, support that they might not expect and that um, they're allowed to be kids. I hope kids reading this can see that, yeah, things are hard, but you can still have fun and you can still be a kid and you can ask for help so that you can continue to be a kid even through struggles and that you can come through and still be strong and still be joyful and have that kind of love in your life. Perfect theme for this book. And i recommend all of my listeners go out and get it right away. You may already be a winner by Andy Ellis. Such a beautiful book that is empowering and tells a beautiful story of kids facing the odds and facing challenges and still coming out with that joy and hope, which is which is what we need today, I think, for most of us. So thank you so much, Andy. Thank you. Authors like Andy can translate reality into fiction and are able to connect with readers on a much deeper level. Another author, Kristen Crow, did this beautifully in her book, Examining the Challenges of Being a Middle Child. So welcome to Storytime with Middle Child Blues by Kristen Crow. Well, first there was Raymond, uh-huh. and then came Lee. That's me. Kate, she was next, so that made three. Ray's the admired son. Ooh. Kate is the cute one. Oh, yeah. But me, I'm in between. Hardly noticed, hardly seen. I'm too big for Kate's playmates. Ray's friends yell, beat it, go. But when my pals come over, Kate and Raymond steal the show. 
Why does Ray stay up later? Shouldn't Kate have chores too? My parents say he's older and she's younger than you. I've got the middle child blues. I feel forgotten and confused. That's right, the middle child blues. And I am really not amused. I've got the low-down, big frown, sulking all around town, bummed-out mid-kid blues. Ray can order a big bun, and Kate's meal has a toy. I get a plain cheeseburger, since I'm just the middle boy. I can't ride with the babies or drive go-karts with Ray. You're too big, you're too little, that's all my parents say. I'm not the shortest. No way. I'm not the tallest. Oh, no. I'm not the biggest and I'm not the smallest. Well, I'm not the last. No way. I'm not the first. Oh, no. I'm not the best and I'm not the worst. I'm not the shiny engine or the little red caboose. I'm just the boring box car. So I wonder, what's the use? I've got the middle child blues. It's a curse I didn't choose. That's right. The middle child blues down to my middle-sized shoes. I've got the low-down, big frowns, sulking all around town, bummed-out, mid-kid blues. So I'll get up my guitar, and I'll play the blues right here for you. Look, I'm drawing a big crowd. They say we're middle children, too. And now there's four TV crews, and they put me on the news singing the middle child blues. I'm a kid like no other, not just Ray and Kate's brother. No, no. I'm Lee, and I'm blue, wishing my folks had a clue. Ooh-hoo. Then Mom and Dad joined the show. We're middle children, too, you know. We just forgot for a while. I pluck my guitar and smile. We sing the middle child blues, and I am really quite amused. We sing the lowdown, showdown, shaking up the whole town, big time, mid-kid blues. Dad says, wow, that's great, but it's getting rather late. I take a bow right on the beat, the applause is pretty sweet. And then I strut like a star to the middle of the car, and I do the middle child snooze. Helping our kids to communicate is crucial in helping them to learn. Listening skills can help our children succeed in the classroom, at home, and in life. We're on the phone today with one of our favorite recurring guests here on Worlds Awaiting, Mary Bigler, who is a lifelong educator and current professor at Eastern Michigan University. Welcome, Mary. How are you? Well, hello. How are you, Rachel? I'm fine and hope everything's going well out in your area. Well, everything is fine here and I just love chatting with you and we've got some great topics to discuss today. So let's start off talking a little bit about listening and particularly how books can help us with that. So what is it about books and listening that you'd like to share with us today, Mary? Well, you know, It's estimated that students receive about 90% of their information at school through listening to their teachers and to the other students. So it really makes sense as parents and teachers that we want to help children develop their listening abilities. We also know that youngsters who um, have strong auditory skills can process information better when they hear it sometimes than when they can read it. 
And it's just like if I wanted to invite you to a party and I'd say, well, I can give you the directions, I could write them, and you might say, well, you know, just tell me and I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Because some of us are better at listening than we are at reading. So we want to improve children's listening abilities because it will help them to process information and learn content better. So I love to use books and songs and storytelling and rhymes. We know that they've been passed down for generations because the children enjoy them and they're fun, but they also have an enormous educational value. So I like to talk about the fact that when you're reciting uh, chants, you're learning how to enunciate and practice voice inflections and you're experiencing the rhythm of the language. And if we read nursery rhymes with children, then they're hearing about a beginning and a middle and an end of a story, and that teaches them that there's a sequence that happens. And obviously, uh, songs and chants and rhymes can expose children to complicated concepts like alliteration that we talk about in the upper grades or onomatopoeia when we say ba, ba, black sheep. We're making words that sound like uh, what we're describing. And of course, we can teach body parts when we say this little piggy went to market and this little piggy stayed home with our youngest children. We're teaching them about their body parts or this is the way we wash our hands. We're developing uh, eye-hand coordination when we do head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. So all of those are wonderful listening skills and abilities, but also very helpful to build background knowledge and vocabulary necessary to be a good reader. I really love this all-encompassing sense that these kinds of rhymes and things that we are doing develop, because you're right, they do develop these listening skills. And one of the things about them is they really did come from that oral tradition. So not only are we developing background knowledge and helping our kids with listening skills, but we're also carrying on a rich heritage, a rich tradition of oral communication that uh, has been going on for centuries. That's so true. And what's exciting, I think, about today is that almost all of our favorite children's songs and rhymes are now available as books, usually accompanied by CDs, so we can hear them sung and we can sing along. And, of course, with YouTube, many of the uh, authors and singers actually record these, and children and parents can go online and see the author reading or reciting or singing his or her uh, creation. And um, I love sharing the fact that so many authors and illustrators have done different versions of the very same song. So I'll bring in six or seven examples of there wasn't a lady who swallowed a fly, and the children can see all the different ways that's been interpreted by illustrators. Or I'll bring in ten different versions of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. And a lot of children don't even know that they're books. They know they're songs, but they didn't know they were made into books. So I think we have the best of all possible worlds today when we have both the oral that we can hear and at the same time the text that we can see and the gorgeous illustrations that we can enjoy. And I love bringing in those different versions because I think that really helps our listening skills, particularly when they're, they do something unexpected. We have to be listening extra carefully to see where those changes are. So it really focuses and does concentration really well in a way that just repeating the same rhyme over and over may get us complacent about listening. But when we listen to something that's new, it helps us focus and listen for what the changes are. I agree entirely, and maybe one of the best examples of that is uh, Marianne Kowalski has done The Wheels on the Bus. 
Now, you know, that's an old, old song that we all know, but she has given it a new twist and a very much of a surprise ending. Uh, Grandma takes her granddaughter shopping for new winter coats, and as they wait for the bus to take them home, Grandma encourages them to sing a song that she learned when she was a little girl. So they start singing uh, the wheels on the bus, and they sing it with so much gusto that they miss the bus. And then with a real comical twist at the end, they have to take a taxi home. (laughs) (laughs) The wheels on the taxi. (laughs) That's it. And, of course, the preschool or the primary grade children think that is just very, very funny. They have to take a taxi home after singing about the, the wheels on the bus. And I like that because it is a twist, as you suggest, at the end, and also that she adds a story to that well-known song. I love some of this connection, too, that listening isn't necessarily a passive kind of thing. When you say we do drama with, like, Teddy Bear, Teddy Bear, or even the Itsy Bitsy Spider when we do, like, hand motions with it, I think that's a wonderful connection there, particularly that these rhymes provide, is to not only allow for the listening skills, but also to get our whole body engaged, which is another way to improve concentration, is to help us move and add that movement in. Yes, and even just exercise, or I say the kinesthetic learners, the children who like to move and and can learn a text better if they're they're jumping or hopping or moving around, and that again is um, using all of our modalities to be a good reader and a good listener and a good speaker and, and so on. And you know, I don't want our listeners to think that songbooks are only for real young children because my upper elementary and middle school students thoroughly enjoyed Take Me Out to the Ball Game, the unofficial anthem of baseball. And Carly Simon worked with Jack Norwath uh, on that version, and they have a CD featuring Carly Simon singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I say that song never sounded better or looked better than that gorgeous book. Or my seventh graders never tired of listening to Woody Guthrie sing his beloved folk song, you know, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, which is just exquisitely illustrated by Kathy Jacobson. And Kathy creates a really unforgettable portrait of our diverse country and its people. And I think kids of all ages, even adults, enjoy looking for Woody and his guitar that she's kind of hidden and interspersed throughout the pages of the book. So how... how fortunate we've got these wonderful tools to inspire our older children, not just the little ones. I couldn't agree more. I I think that this connection that we make to the beauty and rhythm of language through rhymes and songs just really makes our language experience richer. And that language experience becomes richer not only through our reading and our textual decoding, but also through our listening. And then also as we do our speaking, as we add some of this kind of rhythm and beauty to our language, it it extends our capacity to be a more literate person. And I certainly agree. And that's a very wise comment. Um, I want to mention my favorite book uh, for listening and speaking and using with parents because I call this a family book. And I imagine a lot of people here that are listening today will remember when Patty Page recorded How Much Is That Doggy in the Window. Well, that has come out now in a fabulous book by Bob Merrill. He doesn't use the original lyric, but he tells an even better story about a boy who falls in love with a dog at the pet store, but he doesn't have enough money to buy him. And so the boy works hard to earn money to buy the dog, but 
ends up spending it on family members whose needs he puts before his own. He goes back to the pet store. He knows he can't buy the dog because he doesn't have enough money. And when he gets there, the dog's been sold. And he's a little disappointed, but, of course, with one of these surprise endings, uh, the pet store owner tells him someone bought the dog for their very special young son. And when he goes home, of course, the dog comes bounding out of his house and he realizes that it's his family that they, he made many sacrifices to help them, so they arranged to buy the dog for him. It's a wonderful family story about love and sharing and caring. I like to recommend that book to parents to say this is a good book to share with your, with your family. That is such a beautiful book. I would second your recommendation. This is such a wonderful topic and issue. So, Mary, as we kind of close up our discussion today on this topic of listening skills and books for listening, what would be the one thing that you would want our listeners or our parents to to take away today? Well, we've mentioned so many good things about um, the fact that we're hearing the rhythm and the sounds and the words of the language and it stimulates imagination and, and um, curiosity and certainly helps them give them uh, practice in being better listeners. I guess I'd like people to know that we have so many resources available. The library has um, dual language books because a lot of these songs have been translated into other languages. And also that the libraries have websites that offer e-books that would be yet another way that children can experience the books that we've talked about today and can hear other people reading these books to them or singing these songs to them so that we can enjoy um, our favorite books either by reading or by listening. And we are blessed to live in a country where we have access to these fabulous materials. A perfect way to sum it up. Thank you so much for sharing with us your vast knowledge today, Mary. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and I just hope all all of our listeners out there are reading and listening and enjoying good books with their children. I certainly hope so too, Mary. And thanks again for all your insights today. We recently had the opportunity to sit down with the cast of Studio C to hear about their insight into books and how they find inspiration for their show and for their lives. Let's take a listen. How did books help to get you kind of into this creative business? Books like automatically and naturally force you to use your imagination. You know, when you get reading, you, you're able to, like, throw yourself into a world and, like, you're in this, like, new universe where you're imagining things and, like, you know, seeing this story unfold. So how do you think books can help with that creative writing process? You have to expose yourself to a lot of different kinds of writing because you never know where you're going to get inspiration from. But you also should be reading a lot of things, whether it's comedic or otherwise. You can't just, like, practice writing. Mm-hmm. You also have to expose yourself to different types of, like, writing. You have to consume it. You have to watch comedy, all that stuff. It helps. And in your opinion, what do you think makes a book good? Oh, <laughs> she went there. <laughs> that is a really good question. It is. I think it just has to be compelling. I have a hard time with it's like, and this was the color of this and that. I'm like, yeah. let me just imagine yeah. some of this. It's super important to feel like an emotional connection or some sort of mm-hmm. investment sometimes. But man, you gotta have the action. Like, if there's no action, like, what, like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Why are we reading this story? It just needs to have like a reason to tell this story. Like things happen. What is the reason? Yeah. yeah. 
like think of Harry Potter. It's like you come into it. You don't come into it ten years before you know before he gets his letter to Hogwarts. You come in at like the right the most exciting part that lasts for you know several books. And I've seen some of your skits with like Anne Withers. How do you take books and kind of turn them into a comedic sketch? Yeah, there's so many different ways. And I think what's nice about it is it's it's like uh, you know it's a shared experience that the audience probably has. They've probably read this book. Then they they recognize it and they can appreciate the humor. I, I feel like books are a way to like bring everyone onto the same page, so to speak. Oh, I see what you did there. Ah. Same page. Do you have any moments, either when you were little or recently, where books or reading has kind of made a difference in your life? I feel like books, man, I feel like they, they totally made me smarter. Like increased vocabulary. <laughs> I just remember uh, growing up and like jumping into like books that were a little bit more elevated than my grade. It's, and I was just exposed yeah. to so many different words and like phrases and even like experiences. Because, you know, you're reading books, learning like people's life. It helps you like sympathize with people more. And you can ask everyone now. My vocabulary is huge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, growing up, there was just like a bunch of different books. You know, I read like the Goosebumps series, but I also read The Hobbit. Then like Harry Potter came out. I feel like that revived my interest in reading a lot. And Jurassic Park made me want to write. It wasn't like it had like a profound impact on me other than like, I want to write things because this was really interesting. And do you have a favorite book from your childhood? Mm. I really liked the BFG by Roald Dahl. Oh, his books are so good. One. Why is that one your favorite? It was so imaginative. I don't know. I just, I really grabbed onto it. The idea of this, I wanted to know what like Frob Scottle tasted like. Like, <laughs> it must taste so good. <laughs> and just the idea of like being able to control dreams was really fascinating to me. I just, I loved it. Oh man. I, that's such a good question. Just like different phases of life. One of the earliest books I remember loving was called Jumping Mouse. And it was like a picture book, right? And I was, like, super young. And it was just this, like, inspiring book about, like, you could be whatever you want to be. And it was, like, tied to, like, Native American lore. And so it was, like, connecting and stuff. And then, like, as I got older, it was just, like, the more exciting the book was, the better. You know what I mean? Like, Roald Dahl. I remember I loved Matilda. That was, like, Uh, of his series, I think that was my favorite book of his. Say there's a kid out there who maybe doesn't like reading. What advice would you have for him? Give up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't listen to me, child. I would say, like, start with what you're interested in. Try to find something that lines up into that category because there's something out there for everyone. You know, there's just so many books and libraries are like, I feel like these days especially they're underappreciated for how cool they truly are and how much they actually have in them. There's definitely something. It's just, just try something. Just try a little bit. And if you don't like the first 10 pages or whatever, maybe move to a different book. Dude, I totally second that. Like, I have friends that are like, man, I don't, I hate reading. I'm like, you just haven't found Mm. the genre or the style that you love. Like, there's something out there for everyone. If you're into, like, history, read, um, History fiction, find your style. Like, I've read books from different styles that just, like, have grabbed me. And it's just, like, the hardest part about reading is, like, finding the good books. You know what I mean? That's what I think. Mm-hmm. It's like, once you get it, though, it just grips you. stepping stones in helping children to explore the world around them and to help them find their own identities. It's important to remember that literacy is the tool that can open up the world to our children. So today in studio, let's chat with Brad Wilcox, who's an expert in literacy. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So Brad, tell me a little bit about why literacy matters. I think literacy matters because 
It is how we see the world. It is how we view the world. It is how we make sense of the world. Sometimes when I go out into public schools and I work with schools all across the country, I've worked with some schools in some inner cities that have difficult challenges. I've worked with schools on uh, Native American reservations and have seen teachers with real challenges. And uh, I look at these classrooms and I wish I could wave a magic wand and I could give every child two parents. And I wish I could wave a magic wand and I could give every child the security of knowing where his next meal is coming from. And I wish I could wave a magic wand and I could free children from neglect and abuse. But I can't. However, I can give them literacy. And as I give them literacy, then I'm giving them a lens through which they can see the good in their lives and a lens through which they can see how their lives compare to other lives so that they can start seeing what they can change. And so I wish I could give every kid a great life, but we can't do that. But we can give them literacy, and that gives them a tool with which they can make sense of their lives and with which they can improve their lives. That is a wonderful way to look at it because I I truly believe in that kind of transformative sense of literacy, that being able to engage with our world on this broad level really transforms our lives in a very fundamental way. So how do we go about understanding that scope of literacy when it's it's much more broad than just maybe reading a a book or something like that. Well, I think one of the things we can do is remember that there are two modes of of uh, literacy. There's a receptive mode and an expressive mode. And the first balance we need to strike is between those two, reading and writing. See, reading is seeing the world from the outside in. We're taking what's outside and putting it, putting it in, and that's vital. But it's also important to be able to see the world from the inside out, to be able to discover what's inside of us and bring it out. Listening is a receptive language art, and speaking is an expressive language art. And one leads to the other. And so I think we've got to be able to find that balance. And when it comes to literacy, traditional literacy of reading and writing, we need to be able to help kids. And we've got to stop thinking about, well, I just need to help teach my kid to read. We also need to say writing's an important part of this. And we need to give kids a chance to be able to express themselves. Did you ever see the movie Freedom Writers. I did. That's a wonderful movie. I always tell my students who are training to be teachers that they need to see that movie, not just because it does a good job of telling a feel-good teacher story about a teacher who makes a difference in inner city L.A., but it's how she makes the difference. See, these kids are up to here. They're fed up to here with outside in. Don't give me one more rule. Don't give me one more assignment. Don't give me one more thing to read. They want to bring it the other way. And when she finally recognizes that, she gives them journals and she says, this way you can write what you're learning, what you're thinking. You can write about your life. And if you want me to look at it, put it in the locker at the back of the room. And what happens? 
They all put it in the locker at the back of the room. Everybody. These are high school kids, but they're searching for that validation. They have lives full of meaning and full of problems and full of significance, and they want to share that. And they had never been given that opportunity because we've got to make sure that they learn this and this and this and this to get ready for the test. Well, I'm sorry, but a test isn't always the best way for kids to express themselves. Most definitely. And I think with the balance of literacy, sometimes it's that expressive, creative part that we don't pay as much attention to. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we spend less time on that more creative, expressive sense of literacy? Well, in about the year 2000, no child got left behind. But writing got left behind. The arts got left behind. Expression got left behind. And I'm not knocking uh, the goals of that program or any program that's trying to help children. But I do think it's important that we remember that reading, writing, and arithmetic have always been the basics in American schools. When I look back at my own elementary school experience, what do I really remember well, I remember being in a little singing group and singing patriotic songs and doing our little actions. I remember a dance festival. I remember being in a play and being so excited when I got to – they put makeup on in a costume and we were going to go out and be in this little play. And I look at those experiences and I think, my goodness – so many of those experiences were artistic. They were expressive. I wonder now in schools if children are having those same experiences and opportunities or if we're leaving some of those sadly to the side in our rush to up the test scores. Yeah, I think in some ways we are leaving those behind. And one of the things smart I smart teachers smart aren't. teachers aren't. And yeah. they they they're finding ways to integrate the arts with literacy. And so there are teachers who are really keeping that because they know how important it is. Uh, there are parents who are finding ways for children to be expressive as well as receptive. But it takes a very clever parent and a clever teacher to keep that balance when it's not built into the system. Yeah. So how can we do that? How, particularly as parents in the home, how can we build some of those activities or senses into our own home life? Rachel, I think every parent can learn three words. And those three words are going to make a huge difference in the literacy level in the house. And that's two with and by. Reading to children, reading with children, and giving kids a little chance to read by themselves. Writing to children. What? Yeah, little notes to kids. Put it on the mirror, put it on a pillow, put it in a lunchbox. But write little notes to kids. Writing with kids. Hey, tell me what you want to tell grandma and I'll type it here in the in the email that I'm writing. See, writing with kids and giving kids a little chance to write by themselves a journal. My kid, uh, my daughter grew up loving to read and write and I just felt like the most successful parent in the world. Then along came my son. And he didn't want anything to do with books, nothing to do with writing, nothing to do with any of that. And I felt like such a failure. And my wife said, well, he's motivated by money, so let's pay him for every book he reads. Well, you know, being a teacher, I knew that that kind of external motivation wouldn't last. It it it'd catch his attention for a day or two, but it wouldn't last. And so finally I thought, no, what he needs is time. 
So, and he needs books. If you want a kid to swim, you can't put an inch of water in the bottom of a swimming pool. You got to fill the pool. So we went down and we got tons and tons of books from the library and we put them all over his room. And then we sent him to bed a little early. He said, I'm not tired. Then read. I don't want to read. Then sleep. See, if the choice was read or sleep, then sometimes reading won. And then Mrs. Piggle Wiggle caught his attention. And pretty soon the Bernstein Bears caught his attention. And pretty soon he was reading. And it came down to giving him a little time. He had the model. My wife and I read to him. We read with him. We read his little school books that came home with him. But we hadn't given him time when the TVs turned off, when the computers turned off, when he could just be with books. And that's when he started catching on to this whole magic of literacy. So let's remember to, with, and by, not just in reading, but in writing, writing to kids, writing with kids, and giving kids a chance to write by themselves and journal or letters are absolutely the best way ever for kids to be able to have a moment when the spelling doesn't count too much and the and they can they doesn't have to you know be the nicest handwriting but they can still get it out and have that chance to just have the magic of getting it out. My little granddaughter's a kindergartner now, and it's so cute because she's realizing that she can communicate through writing. So the other day, her mom was busy talking on the phone, and she kept trying to get her mom's attention. And finally, she went and wrote her mom a note. And the letters, they don't even spell conventional words, but you can tell that she had something to say, and she went and just presented her mom with this note. And I think, well, how does she know to do that? Well, she's received notes from grandma, from grandpa, from mom, from dad, from caring teachers. And so she knows the power of literacy. That is a wonderful story that really shows how when you make that connection between what is being communicated and how it's being communicated, just how it can open a world for a child. Well, I love the title of this program, Worlds Awaiting. I think it's an awesome title because that's what literacy is. Literacy connects them to worlds awaiting. Great thing to end on. Thank you so much for your time today, Brad. Thank you. Brad Wilcox is an expert in literacy, and I'm so glad that he was able to join us on the show today. Before we leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table with other librarians to talk about books, children, and life. We are going to look today, I think, a little bit about your your expertise. Both of you are editing majors, and so you look critically at manuscripts and books and from that editing eye. So let's chat a little bit today about the pitfalls and the strengths of editing. So to start out, what why is editing so important? I mean, why is this role that an editor plays in building a manuscript, building a story? Why do you, why do you think that's so important? That is a really good question. That's a good, great well, question, and, yeah. And it's something that sometimes I just want to shake people and be like, <laughs> editors are so important. Yeah. I think it's something that everyone thinks that they can be an editor. And to an extent, everybody should be an editor. Yes. And that yes. everybody should reread what they what they write and look at. Yeah. But it is so important to have another person's eye. And especially someone with training as mm-hmm. an editor because yeah. they are trained to see those things 
the pit, the the pitfalls. Like we can yeah. talk about the pitfalls. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things for me is people when they think an editor, they think kind of that copy editing. I guess is where mm-hmm. I would classify it. Yeah. Right to make sure we spelled everything right, yeah. to make sure we have all the commas in the right place, to make sure that you know our grammar is correct and all that kind of stuff. And that's one kind of editing, right? But the really great editors, in my estimation, and the really trained editors look beyond that yes. kind of stuff. Yes. They look at the whole package. They look at how the story is the constructed. Yep. You know, the substantive editing. Okay, def- define that for us. You say okay. that. What does that mean? So that's like the plot, like yeah. looking mm-hmm. at the storyline. Does this arc make sense? Something that I thought was really interesting that substantive editing does is they'll look and say, if you said that was today, they make sure that day was still Tuesday. Like they make sure that you, when you're talking are you still talking about nighttime or is it daytime? Like they mm-hmm. find things like that within some really specific things like that, but also big overarching. Why is that really right. this character's – is yeah, this like, really is what this, this character yeah, would do? Is this behavior um, accurate to your – development of the character mm-hmm. stuff yeah. like that yeah well and I, I think they would look at like genre conventions yeah. right mm-hmm. you know if, if this is a realistic story and you bring in suddenly this kind of fantasy element you know does that really fit within the context of the story right because a lot of editors are genre specific as well some will jump throughout genres that they mm-hmm. like but you really want an editor that isn't like experience in the genre that you want them to edit in because yeah, they've that knows the market yeah. that knows the kind of things people are looking for and they'll find things that are really out of place in a bad way yeah saying like yeah. people who read yeah. fantasy will not like this yeah. <laughs> yeah well and i think i think that's part of what they bring to the table right is a broad understanding of of all of those conventions right mm-hmm. the literary the literary standards of plot theme character setting all of those kinds of things but then genre conventions and all that kind of stuff which is one of the reasons that I am not a huge fan of self-published kinds of things because I really think in the end great writing is collaborative Mm -hmm. and that means you need more than just one person and so a lot of times self-published don't have that kind of collaboration they just write it and then they publish it or they get an editor and it's more of that non-substantive mm-hmm. editing yeah. right and then they just self-publish it because then you know they just send it out there so you know while while I think some self-published stuff is really great for me a great majority of it isn't because that piece is missing mm-hmm. you know I've read a ton of good books obviously I've read a ton of bad books and the thing that always bugs me is um what I what I had just said before about um, character development and it not being in line with the the type of person that you have made this character out to be, and then they do something that is just it doesn't fit. And I just I always want to see the author and be like, why did you why do did you this? Do that? Yeah, it yeah. just oh, it infuriates yeah. me. Something yeah. that really bothers me that I think a good editor could easily point out and and fix and they could work together to do is when someone brings in too many elements into a plot. Oh, yeah. Or like you have an understanding from the beginning of the book that this is going to be the plot, but then suddenly it changes and you're like, whoa, this is a different book than I was reading. Or if they or start too many on, subplots. Yeah, mm. when they go on adventure yeah. and adventure and adventure and I was like, okay, wait, all these what mini adventures the are in this yeah. big adventure. Yeah. I think that I'm almost on a travel log instead of mm-hmm. definitely. So they yeah. really make sure that that over that that conflict that you are introducing in the beginning of the book is still present throughout. And mm-hmm. I think they really help push themes that are important 
to a book, important to literature. And I think sometimes those can be missing um, morals. Mm-hmm. And but editors can point that out and be like, "Oh, bring this out. I love. I thought this part was beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. add more of that into your story." And sometimes it takes other people to see that. Yeah, yeah they'll notice plot holes that you would not see if it was just you. Yeah, and I I like that sense of noticing the holes and the pieces because I think a good story has a very beautiful arc to it, right? And one of the things that bugs me is when particularly the emotional arc is not there, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like it's like the character doesn't progress or they don't change or they the change is insignificant at the end, right? And I I, I like a good editor would be like, yes, there needs to be a nice emotional arc (laughs) where the the character changes or, you know, where the plot moves forward I'm reading a book right now and it's just I feel like you know the last six chapters I've been reading the same plot over and over Mm -hmm. and over again and I'm like okay there has to be something that pushes this plot forward and finally in the sixth chapter they got like three sentences of new information that move the plot forward and I'm like we could have had that like five chapters ago (laughs) and it would have been you know so much better and would have moved not only the character's progression forward, but, you know, the the plot's progression forward mm-hmm. in a much more fundamental way, right? But something that makes me think of is the importance of finding a good editor. Ah, yes. Because I think a lot of people are driven to yeah. self-publishing because they've worked with people who don't... It's almost, you got to shop around. Yeah. yeah. There's not going to be someone that just fits with you. And I think yeah. those... And, and yeah. publishing is a hard and long process. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. And yes, so it is. some people... Think of it as a relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of people turn to self-publishing just because it's easier and it's going to be a lot quicker yeah. and a lot a lot less of an emotional toll yeah. on you. Well, and I mean, there's a good place for self-publishing. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to totally bash yeah. self-publishing. And and there's a lot of great self-published authors that, you know, go through this process. I have great friends that I just, you know, but they really take it seriously, right? For mm-hmm. them, it's a career. It's a job. It's something they take seriously. But a lot of people don't. So there's there's an interesting, there's an interesting balance. But either way, finding a great editor, you know, is one of those kind of foundational things that makes makes this kind of story progress right as we mm-hmm. go through it so in in our next conversations we're going to talk about a little bit more and break down some of the more specifics of of all of this but you know hopefully someday you too will be those great editors right and you will be <laughs> you'll so. be the great editors of, of the future so you know if anybody's looking for a great editor you you know that emily and taylor are <laughs> on their way <laughs> to, to doing great things as they as they break down these great important parts of the story so thanks very much ladies thank you, thank you. I'd like to thank Emily and Taylor for joining me today at the librarian's table, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening in. I'm so glad you were able to join me today as we explored these new worlds. We talked with Andy Ellis about her new book. We talked with Mary Bigler about how to help our children develop listening skills. And we talked with literacy expert Brad Wilcox and the cast of Studio C. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, please feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Becca Hurley. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for next week. Thank you for exploring with us.